Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palfreman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I are taking a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, our topic today is something that seems to have the attention of both the medical and patient community these days, which is the increasing focus and attention everyone seems to have about the role of exercise in Parkinson's. Right, Dave. It's a fascinating topic. And today we have interviews with two leaders in this field, Dr. Terry Ellis, who is the director of the Center for Neurorehabilitation at Boston University, and Dr. Helen Bronte-Stewart, who leads the Movement Disorder Center at Stanford University. And Dave and I began our conversation with Dr. Bronte-Stewart by asking her to tell us why she thinks that exercise is so important. I see exercise as a therapy exactly the same as I would see medication. So depending on what stage of the disease they are at, whether they've already been on medication or they haven't been on anything, one of the things we will discuss is what their medication regimen is or we will go through the types of medication and how they treat the disease, and then we move straight on to exercise. So just like I would examine them and ask them questions about what medications they take, I will examine them and ask them about what types of exercise they do. And if there's somebody who doesn't do a lot of exercise, I start talking about what exercise they like. And I think as a lot of people have discovered now, it's very, very important for people when we start talking about exercise to think about this in a very positive way. And some people, you can almost see them recoiling in the, in the exam room when you talk about exercise as if this is going to be something absolutely horrible. And we, we try to get the discussion going, something very, very approachable and easy. But as far as my overall approach, exercise is something I talk about the very first time I see somebody and I talk about it every single time, just like I go through their medications. I go through what exercise regimen they're on and if they're not doing anything, again, what they like, what they might think about doing, because it's a very powerful therapy in the disease. And why is that? I want to come back to perhaps why it's taken so long, perhaps, for the neurologists and and movement disorder specialists to come to that point of view, because I don't think that was the norm. I don't think of a patient walking into a typical neurologist appointment 10, 15, 20 years ago would have had that experience. And we'll come back and and ask you perhaps about why that's the case. But what is it that makes, in your judgment, first of all, exercise so powerful? Why is it as important for you to make that sort of assessment, talk to patients about it in the same way that you would medication? For me personally, this is something that I have always done because I have been involved in dance and exercise for a long time. It's one of the reasons I got involved in movement disorders, but it seemed to be very commonsensical to me. You have a disorder that causes your body to become stiffer and slower, and the way I approach this with patients is you have a machine that you need to keep well-oiled and you need to keep it in shape in order to mitigate the effects that the brain is trying to impose on it with this disease. So that it, it makes common sense to me that if you keep the body as limber and as strong as possible, especially, say, your core strength, then it's going to be easier for you to get out of a chair, to be able to move more smoothly, etc., than if you don't do anything with it. And I think, as, as we all know, that is appropriate for the general population. The other experience I had when I was a student was I met 
an 86-year-old gentleman who was a yogi from India. And I was told by my professor that he had had Parkinson's disease for close to 30 years. And uh, when I walked into the examining room, there he was in the lotus position sitting on the examining bed. And when I examined him, he had almost no rigidity. And I already came to this with this attitude of my own, but this just confirmed it for me, is that even though this gentleman had had the disease for so long, physically, I couldn't see many of the signs of the disease in his body. And it just confirmed to me that this must be very important. Having said that, I actually found out from one of my patients that when they were at a support group, another person had been to see me and told the support group that the only thing I prescribed for them was yoga, as if it was a derogatory thing. And so now we come full circle, and, and now exercise and stretching and core strength training, etc., is mainstream. But for me, it was much more of a personal thing in the beginning. So why did it take so long, then, for your profession to adopt an idea that, as you put it, is so commonsensical, this, this idea that moving would actually be good for someone with a movement disorder. Why did, why did that take so long? <laughs> take, us, take us sort of inside your profession, I guess, for a moment. So in our profession, things become mainstream when there's a randomized double-blinded controlled trial. It's very straightforward that that would need to be done with medication because the FDA won't approve any therapies unless they have very rigorous testing and experiments and large clinical trials. I think the idea of exercise was seen more as a supportive type of therapy. But until recently, there weren't so many uh, fairly well, well done exercise studies that really began to show that in the standardized rating scale for Parkinson's disease, initially done just with the motor outcomes, but now more and more with cognitive outcomes, quality of life outcomes, that just again and again, these studies showed benefits. And I think once the medical field starts seeing the accumulation of literature showing statistically significant results that have been published in peer-reviewed journals, that's when this becomes mainstream. I think that's appropriate, but I think you could also say that maybe we took a little bit too long to get to this because our training used to be so directed towards these very standard allopathic therapies. And I think that in other cultures, of course, this might be different, but in, in Western medicine, we were trained very much to look at interventions in terms of medication, surgery, and, and luckily for us, that's expanding now. But maybe that's that's another reason why it took a while. Yeah, so among those studies that have been done, there's an enormous number of different things that have been studied and shown to be beneficial. There's walking, tai chi, tango, boxing, spin classes, strength training. It seems like an enormous range, Helen. Yes, and I think that's great. Again, you get back to a bias that we have, is that there's got to be this one medication that affects one receptor that's the, that's the best thing for this you know, a disease. And I think we have to get out of that a little bit and think about the fact that many different forms of exercise can have similar effects in the brain. So ultimately, what we're looking at is we're looking at effects on the brain as well as effects on the body, because we are seeing effects on cognition. We're seeing effects on senses of well-being and mood. So we get back to an idea that there may be some core aspects that need to be worked on. And we, we touched on those, meaning core strength helps you get out of chairs, helps you balance, 
helps you walk. Muscles that are limber, that are flexible, are going to help you not be so stiff. And then aerobic training is good for, for any type of disease and is very important for Parkinson's disease. However, people with Parkinson's disease are very different. And one of the most important things we've learned from clinical research and all the way down to basic subcellular stem cell research with rodents is that the exercise needs to be exercise that the person or the rat likes to do. And when the rat, for instance, is allowed to run on its wheel, which it likes to do and will do for a very long time, these very basic studies have shown that it decreases inflammation in the brain. It also allows their own stem cells to be more prolific. And I think for me as a neuroscientist, this was actually when I really pushed this into mainstream because it was basic science evidence that some of the pathophysiological mechanisms that we know occur in diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, which is inflammation, could actually be changed by this form of therapy. So, so one of the things I talk to people about is what do they like to do? Because it doesn't work if somebody feels forced to go and do an exercise they don't like. It sets up a negative stress environment, and that has been shown in rodent studies not to be helpful. So there are lots of other ideas about why something like tango is so helpful because it really activates those visual spatial sensors. You have to navigate your way through space. Especially if you're the male, you have to plan, you have to, so that activates your executive function, attention, and, and these are areas, parts of our cognitive domain that we know are affected with Parkinson's disease. So there's a, there's a nice scientific sort of inference about why something like tango dancing would be so good for people with Parkinson's, but it's a little bit hard to study that on a clinical basis because it's you just need very large numbers. You need objective outcomes, et cetera. But, so we may not know the answers to why so many of these studies help people with Parkinson's, but we have some inferences and we have some really good basic science foundation. Okay, so now you mentioned with the animal experiments. With animal experiments, you can put a rodent or a monkey on a treadmill and force it to do exercise, and you get pretty interesting evidence that exercise can be neuroprotective. But you're saying with humans, you've got to, you can't really force them to do exercise, but you can persuade them to do something they might like. They're more likely to do something they like than something they don't like, and that's the best strategy. So as you probably have friends, some of whom are mad you know, athletes who just love to exercise and they've, they've been doing it all their lives, and you have some people who really it's never been part of their daily routine. For those people... I ask them about what kind of things they like. Many people like to walk, and actually, as you know, in the studies, that has also been shown to be helpful. And so I encourage them also to start some type of core strength training. But I found for people who don't like to exercise, one of the best strategies is to talk about getting a stationary bike and parking it in front of the television. And I talk about doing five minutes twice a day to start with watching their favorite show. And the feedback that I have got from people for whom exercise was a little bit of a daunting prospect was that this really worked because it, it allowed them to do something that was exercise while watching television program, which again gave them pleasure. So I'm constantly trying to find something that is synergistic with a, a pleasurable activity because I'm really basing it on 
the basic science and believing that that's the best way, number one, for the brain, and number two, for them to continue to incorporate this into their daily routine because it is something that needs to be done by the person. We can't just give them a pill by the person every day. So we need to find a way that that, that will take hold and they'd actually adhere to the exercise regimen. Is there something in this concept of pushing the pace, so walking with somebody who's a pace setter, walking to music, um, riding on the back of a tandem, I've heard, you know, there's Jay Alberts, there's yeah. been studies like mm-hmm. that, where, mm-hmm. where you try and push your pace. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And it's very interesting that we have studies that came out kind of actually fairly close to each other in time, which was Jay Alberts' uh, forced cycling study, and then... Dr. Shannon's, you know, very gentle exercise study. And I think it was very interesting to see that both of them worked because I think after Jay's study, many of us were thinking, okay, we need to, we need to step up the pace here with people. We need to get them exercising at 80% of max and really push it. And then we've had several other studies that have shown that maybe that's not necessary. And I don't think that we as a field understand this as far as one being better than the other. I think it's been quite interesting. But to me, I come back to the patient. And if the person with the thought of being forced to exercise at a high intensity makes them feel uh, like this is a very big hurdle, they're not going to be able to do, then I'm not going to do that. On the other hand, there are people who really are getting into exercise who have already been, say, cyclists in the past. And that's something that they it challenges them, they really feel good about doing it, and they're going to get a lot of benefit out of it. But I don't necessarily push other people to do that because I think we have evidence that maybe it's not completely necessary. I wanted to ask you about a concept I've heard you describe before, which is training to the deficit. And explain, if you would, that concept and why it's so important to develop specific strategies for each specific patient. We hear so often about how varied Parkinson's is, you know, that if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's. So given the varied nature of the disease, why is it so important to assess specifically what each person's issue difficulty is and then develop a regimen appropriate for that? I coined this term about six years ago when I was working with Davis Finney. And I uh, was giving a talk and had reviewed a lot of the sports medicine literature, where it was becoming very clear that in order to become very good at your sport, you needed to do sport-related exercise. And, and I, my interest was piqued with it when there was a balance study that showed that actually people who did judo had better dynamic balance than dancers, which initially annoyed me until I was talking to Lou Nashner, who I work with um, in the balance field. Uh, at a meeting, and I, I talked about this study, and he looked at me, and he goes, duh, Helen, how many times did you dance on an uneven stage? And I thought, of course. I was never trained to dance on a stage that was wobbling or was uneven, and yet people who, who do judo are constantly off their center of gravity. There. And so I started looking into this, and there were some very interesting studies that showed, for instance, that gymnastics, people, gymnasts had better static balance than, say, soccer players who had better dynamic player balance than swimmers, et cetera, et cetera. So I began to flip that model into the idea of Parkinson's disease and develop this concept called training into the deficit. So for, for somebody who's an athlete, you want to train up a specific 
motor skill for that sport. And that means every aspect of your motor control that's going to go towards that sport. Why not look at what happens in individuals with Parkinson's disease? Some people may have difficulty with their balance. Some people may have difficulty with their gait. Some people may have difficulty with their coordination, etc. And then really focus, in addition to general aerobic and core strength training, focus your training on that aspect to help them bring that not to a super strength, but back up to normal. And that was this concept of training into the deficit. I'm curious to hear something more about your own life experience as someone who is trained in the Scottish ballet, as someone who believes in dance and dances still, about what that's taught you about, I guess, the power that is in the body itself and what you think may be going on, I guess, from your own sort of as much as your your intuitive sense of this as a dancer, perhaps as much as a movement disorder specialist, about what it is that we can tap into through exercise that allows this to be such a powerful way of contending with this particular disorder? The experience I had, a lot of it comes from dance. I mean, I, I do a lot of other forms of exercise, but what you learn when you when you learn to dance are more cognitive skills than I think you, you realize. You have to learn to sequence. So one of the most fundamental things of a ballet class is you start at the bar and you do exercises that, in a sense, don't tax your brain very much, um, but they're very important. They're warming you up. They're working on your turnout. They're working on your feet. And then you go into the center, and when you start your center exercises, you have to remember sequences of, of steps. And for me, from a, as coming to, you know, to this field as a dancer, that was so ingrained in the way I would look at movement, the way I would break it down when I was watching somebody move, and the way I try to work with people to put it back together again. I do this every time I'm with a patient. So if they're freezing, I help them learn to walk in a circle and not change motor programs. And we do a lot of sequencing. And I think on a core level, that's where it's coming back to for me is, is this ability you, you learn as a dancer. And I'm sure in other sports, you, you learn how to sequence, and that's very cognitive. So in addition to all the training you give your muscles and joints and the muscle memory, as they talk about, a lot of this is, is a cognitive sequencing process, and it, it, just, it just kind of expands your brain. So there's um, quite a lot of evidence now emerging that motor symptoms can be made better with exercise. What about the non-motor symptoms? Is there anything there that can be improved with exercise as well? I think we're learning more and more, and now more and more studies are specifically looking at non-motor. So this is one of the most exciting things, is that now we do have evidence that there's improvement in mood, that there's improvement in anxiety, that there's improvement in some aspects of cognition, and this is also spreading to other neuropsychiatric diseases such as Alzheimer's. So I think we're going to see um, a lot more evidence coming forward over the next few years where we're looking more at the non-motor symptoms. And so I do think that this spreads to beyond um, the motor symptoms. That was Dr. Helen Bronte-Stewart, a neurologist at Stanford University. But we also wanted to get the perspective of someone who works within the field of physical therapy, particularly since Parkinson's is most commonly diagnosed later in life. 
a time when most people tend to be more sedentary and those with Parkinson's more sedentary still. So next we're going to hear from Dr. Terry Ellis at Boston University. And we began our conversation with Terry by having her describe something called the six-minute walking test. In the six-minute walk test, we have normative data that tells us, you know, how much distance that, uh, you know, let's say you're 65 years old. Well, we have normative data that tells us how much distance people should be able to cover in that six-minute period, you know, whether you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 50s. And so when someone with Parkinson's disease comes in, we want to compare where are they at uh, in comparison to healthy older adults. So we have a sense of whether their gait is already being affected by the disease so that then we can then target that with our exercise programs. So I understand that the simple, the speed at which you walk is a very sensitive metric of mortality and morbidity. Very much so. Talk about that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we there's lots of data in just healthy older adults talking about the relationship of gait speed and mortality. And we know that when people get down below a certain level of walking speed, that that's, you know, a very uh, significant marker of disability and even mortality. And so in Parkinson's disease, we actually did a study, a longitudinal study, looking at the natural history of change in gait speed and walking speed over time. So we have a good idea about how much that changes over time. And what we want to do with exercise is intervene early so that we can try to change that slope of decline. And now that we have more and more of that data, uh, you know, it's telling us more about the natural history of change, we want to now study, okay, if we get in there early and we focus on walking in particular early in the game, can we actually change that trajectory and keep people walking at a higher level for longer periods? What's the desired level? Uh, is it 100 steps a minute or something like that? Um, well, you know, most people walk about, uh, you know, 110 steps or so a minute. Um, and that's, you know, somewhere in the normal range. So that's cadence or, you know, how many steps people take per minute. And that plays a role in, in gait speed. There's also things like step length or how big the step is. So the combination of how big the step is and how many steps per minute that people take, that all uh, contributes to how fast someone walks. And so we want to look at somebody with Parkinson's disease. We want to look at their gait and say, okay, where do we need to intervene? You know, is there a problem with step length? Is there a problem with cadence? Is there a problem with both things? And, you know, that helps to shape how we would intervene. Terry, one of the things that's interesting listening to you describe, especially that last factor in, in gait speed, is that there seems to be a fair amount of data that you can draw upon in not only assessing someone with Parkinson's, but also in making the case for why exercise is important. And yet, when we talked with Helen Bronte-Stewart, one of the observations she made was that her profession, the neurology profession, medical profession in general, had been pretty slow in coming to this realization of the importance of exercise, in part, she said, because it runs kind of counter to the way in which physicians at least normally think and this sort of standard of proof that's normal in, in science about what it takes to make a difference. Do you see it that way as well, that it somehow seems less medical, less scientific, yeah. do you know what I mean, to prescribe exercise? Right. I think people have in their mind that, you know, oh, of course exercise is good. It's good for everybody. Go ahead and exercise. You know, sort of a 
ancillary, oh, you know, a nice add-on, but not really, you know, profound, not in a profound mainstay way. And I think people should be thinking differently in terms of, you know, exercise contributes to chemical changes in the brain, if you will. So there are chemicals such as or BDNF or growth, uh, nerve growth factors that we know are elevated with exercise. Uh, we, we think that exercise has a role in changing, you know, the amount of dopamine that's released and the amount of dopamine available, you know, in the synapse to be picked up. So, you know, exercise, when, when I say that to patients, like exercise, it's not just an, an extra add-on, but exercise, it changes the, the chemistry in the brain. And I think if you think about it like that and you frame it like that, I mean, that's what medicine does, right? We're changing, you know, some sort of chemical balance in the brain. And you get the same effect with exercise with a much smaller side effect profile, right? Much less, much less negatives that go along with exercise. And I think, you know, exercise has also has such profound, diffuse effects, you know, rather than, you know, a medication has a very a targeted uh, effect, you know, which can be positive or negative, but, you know, you can get a lot of bang for your buck with exercise, influencing lots of different things, both in the central and the peripheral nervous system. So that would make it seem like we have made the case, mm-hmm. or that your profession and, and certainly physicians who are interested in exercise have, have made the case. Do we really know, it, has it been proven what exercise can do? I know there's lots of interesting data from the lab about how exercise might be neuroprotective, but do we really know that? We don't really know that, mostly because we don't have a biomarker where we can measure that. So in animals, you can do studies of exercise, and then you sacrifice the animals, and you can, you know, count the number of cells in the substantia nigra to know if there was, you know, slowing of cell death or preservation of cells in that area, and that's what's been shown. You know, so there's quite a bit of evidence in animal models showing the potential, you know, the neuroprotective effect, if you will, of exercise. But in humans, you can't do that. You know, you can only look at the substantia nigra postmortem. And so, you know, until we have uh, some sort of test, and, and this is the same with drug studies. This is what's striking to me is even in clinical trials where, you know, there's a new drug. I mean, the gold standard measurement tool to show neuroprotection in a drug is the UPDRS right, the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. That's a pretty crude clinical measure. Well, we have the same for exercise. That's what we're using, the UPDRS and then some measures of gait and balance and, and other things. But we don't have a biomarker that can actually show the, you know, slowness and progression of a disease in humans. But we don't have that for drug trials either. But somehow exercise is held to a different standard. You know, and, and there's been plenty of exercise trials showing a significant change in the trajectory of UPDRS scores, and it doesn't get nearly the press or nearly the attention that a drug trial would get with an even smaller change in UPDRS scores. I think this, this is a critical opportunity to educate people about the importance of exercise and something that you can take control of, something you can do, something that's you don't have to wait for FDA approval for, something that has a very low side effect profile, something that's easily accessible. Uh, to me, it's a sort of a no-brainer, I guess. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> yeah, so to speak, right. So, Terry, so in, in making the case, I mean, there seem to be a lot of very short-term studies at the moment, all of which show the, the benefits of exercise. Right. 
but a, but an eight week or a ten week study, it's pretty difficult to show convincingly a, a change in the UPDRS. Right, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, but of late in the last few years, there's a, a few larger clinical trials that have looked over the longer term. And believe me, we need a lot more in this area, and that is the question. We really want to know. We have convincing evidence. If you exercise for 8, 10, 12 weeks, you're going to look better than you did at baseline or in better, better compared to another group who didn't exercise. But what we really want to know is what if you exercise for a year, five years, 10 years? You know, how does that change the trajectory compared to people who, with Parkinson's who don't exercise? That's a hard trial to get funded, right? It's a, long, a long-term trial. But there have been a couple of trials. Daniel Korkos' group, they just published a, a study looking at progressive resistance training over a two-year period of time. And they showed significant changes in the UPDRS score. So, you know, that's just one example. There's a multi-center trial going on right now around the country that actually Daniel is involved in as well, you know, looking at the difference between high-intensity and low-intensity aerobic training in Parkinson's disease. You know, does it matter the intensity? And that trial is over one year. So we're getting there. And, uh, you know, the ParkFit trial in, uh, in the Netherlands, you know, that was a two-year trial. And they showed, you know, using an activity monitor in anyway, they showed that people with Parkinson's were able to increase their activity level over a two-year period. So talk about wearable sensors. You mentioned activity modules. Uh, yeah. This new technology that's everywhere now, from Fitbits to Apple Watches, I mean, yeah. do you see this playing a role in making it easier to do? Yeah, we're actually, that's actually a great question. We're, I mean, we're doing a study right now, actually, looking at, can we just get people with Parkinson's to walk more if we give them a Fitbit? And, you know, and we're using some different apps and things like that to try to sort of build in some, you know, feedback, some data. You know, what if people had access to their own data? What if they got reminders? What if they knew that I was looking at their data periodically? What if I brought them back in every six months to discuss how they're doing with walking and look at their data with them? Well, those are the kinds of things we're looking at. So that gets more into sort of behavioral modification. You know, once you are armed with the education that you need and once you know what the recommendations are, then can you actually do it, right? And that's another big hurdle to overcome. I wonder, Terry, if you could talk some about what a physical therapist can do uh, that's perhaps different than when you go to see your neurologist, even a neurologist who's a strong proponent of exercise. I think many of us have had experience with seeing a physical therapist for a specific injury. You know, right, I've, got a, right. I've got a bad knee, and so I, I go to see a physical therapist for a short-term period to kind of work on that specific injury. But what's different about what a physical therapist can provide, both in terms of what they look for, what they assess, what mm -hmm, they can prescribe, mm -hmm. And the way in which people can sort of best utilize them over time when they're when they're living with Parkinson's. Right, that's a great question, Dave, and one that I'm working so hard to change people's perception about that. You know, one thing people should know is that you know when you go to your neurologist, you know they focus on testing things like rigidity and the, the stiffness and the slowness and the uh, tremor and things like that. And everybody's familiar with the the common test where they have you open and close your hands and tap your fingers and tap your heels and those kinds of things. You know, and they're looking for changes in the actual symptoms, the primary symptoms of Parkinson's disease, to help them make decisions about whether people need a medication change, right? 
to target those particular symptoms. Well, when you come to see a physical therapist, we look some at those things too, but we look more broadly. We want to know how is Parkinson's actually impacting your day-to-day life in the form of walking and balance and using your hands, fine motor control, and your overall quality of life, and standing up from a chair, and getting in and out of bed, and turning around a corner. What, how is this really impacting people's day-to-day lives? So when we're armed with that information, then we can tailor an exercise program to that individual. So we know the sort of general areas of exercise that are really important, aerobic conditioning, for example, a strengthening program, balance training, uh, stretching and flexibility training. But everybody with Parkinson's is so different and shows up with a, a very different profile. So we want to take that, you know, what are those areas of exercise we know are important and tailor that to the individual. And then we want to arm them with behavioral strategies so that they can actually successfully implement the exercise program over time. And then we want them to come back and see us periodically. Just like people go to their neurologist every three or six months or so, and they repeat the UPDRS again and look at the symptoms and then decide whether that person needs a medication change. Well, the same thing should happen with a physical therapist and exercise. You don't get one exercise program at the beginning that's good for life, right? That exercise program needs to be adjusted, more challenging or or tweaked in in such a way based on new problems that arise or based on improvements that we see. So, you know, I think people at the beginning should get one prescription for whatever medication is appropriate and another prescription for exercise, and then follow the you know the neurologist and the physical therapist every whatever three six months over the course of the disease, so that people can be monitored and measured closely, and their treatment can be tailored to their particular profile. That was Terry Ellis, director of the Center for Neurorehabilitation at Boston University. And John, one of the things I thought was interesting about both our conversation with Terry Hallis and before that with Helen Bronte-Stewart is there seems so much, as Bronte-Stewart put it, so much common sense evidence for the role of exercise in treating Parkinson's, but there still seems to be a need to further develop the standard of proof to really document what exercise actually does. Yes, I think what they need is bulletproof studies, studies that are so convincing that it really compels Parkinson patients to go out and exercise because it's it is really a no-brainer and I know you exercise Dave don't you do you practice what you preach on this subject (laughs) I I heard a neurologist say the other day I believe in exercise so much I'm going to start doing it someday Um, but yes in fact I do and I and I believe as I think you do that it's made a real difference in being able to do well with this condition And I think you're right. I think we need bulletproof studies to persuade both the patient community, but I think the medical community as well, because while there are many people like Terry Ellis and Helen Bronte-Stewart who obviously are devotees of this approach, I think that there are some people who still think, well, if it doesn't come with a a medicine, you know, if it doesn't come out of a surgical suite or a pharmacist lab, uh, it's not really medicine. And, And I don't know as we're there yet as far as getting everyone to buy into that approach. I think the sad thing is that when you take the full impact of exercise, I mean, across all of medicine, it's good for cardiovascular health, it's good for cognitive health, it's good for things way beyond Parkinson's disease. It's really something you should be doing whether you've got our disease or not, it's so important. Exactly right. And it's part of this continuing 
saga, I think, of living with Parkinson's that involves incorporating so many things, both exercise and, of course, new approaches to treatment and other uh, new developments and research that we'll be tackling as this series continues. So that's it for this time on the Portland Countdown. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition, with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.